choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Ten, because that nine, goal ignition will serve to organize start. and measure the Six, best five, of our energies four, and skills. Three, because that two, challenge is one, one that we're willing to accept. All engine we running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Okay, welcome everyone to the next episode of the New Space Vision Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Jerome, CTO from Spire, a real new space giant. Jerome and I, we already talked in the past and I thought it would be the perfect guest for our new podcast. And also something really nice, uh, I found something really nice today on my computer because when I did a little bit of research about Spire, I found out that they were a result of the Arduisat program. And then I remembered, well, that's that rings a bell. Ah, well, I should maybe dig in one of my uh, in one of my old hard drives. And what I found was a Word document from 2012 with some of the scientific or uh, payload ideas for Arduisat. Um, so I am very thrilled and very excited to have Jerome on the podcast. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about what Spire does? Yeah, sure. So um, Spire is a space-driven data company and data services, data products company. You know, we sometimes joke that we're just a data company. We've got the competitive advantage of having our own in-house space program. So we do, uh, you know, build and launch and operate satellites. All, our whole business model is is driven around data from space, augmenting, you know, life on Earth and improving life on Earth. So um, we sell um, all kinds of data collected through RF data collection, so radio frequency data collection. So we don't do any imagery. We focus on listening to all kinds of signals from space. So ship tracking, aircraft tracking, um, weather data, ionospheric data, those kinds of things are really in our wheelhouse or our bread and butter. And then we'll either sell those to interested parties, whether it's commercial or government, or we'll, um, we'll fuse them with terrestrial data, all kinds of data sources, existing databases, other terrestrial sensor networks, things like that, and sell that as a product. Or um, we will ingest them in some of our predictive models um, and then sell, sell model outputs, things like that. So we, we're, we're all about providing um, data services and, and data products to anybody who's interested. That's super cool. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you're one of the co-founders and uh, the CTO of this uh, really new space company, a successful new space company. Before, you didn't do a lot. So you also like fresh graduated from university. And a few months later, you started this company, which is now a giant in the new space industry. How did that come? Pretty much, yeah. So um, after I finished my engineering master's degree in, uh, in Belgium, where I'm from, I uh, moved to France uh, and joined this place called the International Space University, which is a real place. Um, and they teach you all about um, the space industry, but really in a broad sense. It's not a very deep engineering degree, but you get kind of a taste of, you know, the industry, the markets, the ecosystems, the, um, the legal frameworks, all of that. Um, and so there I met uh, my co-founders and pretty early on already, we kind of had a feeling that we wanted to do something. Neither of us kind of wanted to uh, leave this program at the end and then go work for one of the aerospace giants that existed, but we wanted to get our hands dirty, do something you know, fun, something new. At that point, Peter, our, our CEO, he's a little bit uh, more experienced 
worked at CERN, Wall Street, and all kinds of other places. Uh, he did uh, this um, study on the business ecosystem of nanosatellites. You know, at that point, still fairly small, really before the the first kind of boom of uh, uh, nanosat companies. Um, but of course, CubeSats had existed already since the early 2000s. And he found that we were kind of at this breaking point where kind of half of the people were saying, you know, hey, this is going to be the greatest thing that's coming. Uh, the other half of the people said, you know, this is going to be a fun toy for, uh, for academia to play with, but but nothing more. But then we also looked at the data and you could see the, um, the performance of these satellites increasing exponentially. We, we thought, okay, if this sits on an exponential curve, we got to get our foot in the door. We got to get on there. And that's where you know, the, the ideas for the crowdfunding and whatnot came in. And then um, I did spend a little bit of time at, uh, at NASA Ames in California, but then eventually decided to, to start the company there because the environment there was so you know, supportive of an idea like that. Great. Yeah, we also did a podcast with uh, Gary Martin, who is uh, yeah. also teaching at the International Space University. And I think he's pretty happy to hear that you found your um, co-founders uh, at the ISU. Um, and you said that you didn't want to work at a traditional um, uh, space company, but you had a short time at NASA, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was still, you know, that was always kind of a dream to, uh, to be at a, a place like that. It's very... You know, especially for a European uh, engineer, it's, it's very hard to get there. And it's still a very innovative and challenging environment to be. So to, to get some some time there and see what it's really like, how people design real missions, that was still, I think, a very relevant thing to do. So maybe walk us a little bit through the transition from having a Kickstarter campaign and, and an educational satellite to having a real business and a real company which yeah. has like a multitude of customers and big operations. What were some of the high and low lights along the way? Yeah, definitely a big difference. So the, the Kickstarter really was just to dip our toes in the water and to see, you know, well, it had two purposes really. One was to see, is there any interest in this? Can we come up with use cases that are really interesting, not just to individuals, you know, joining the Kickstarter, but to companies and things that we can eventually sell. And, um, you know, the second purpose was also to get our foot in the door with the technology and to be able to, you know, fund the first satellite, start exploring, you know, the, the supply chain, start understanding how to build and launch these things successfully. So once we finished that Kickstarter campaign successfully, we did see a lot of interest. So at that point, we said, yes, let's, you know, let's give this a shot. Let's try and do this for real. And the first thing we did at that point was we hired a business person to go and see what do these markets look like? What, where is there a good intersection between what the technology is capable of and what the markets want and you know a market where there's kind of relatively easy access. Uh, so we did that. In the meantime, we, we built these first couple of satellites, launched them you know, within the first year and um, started getting experience, started understanding you know, how this worked, what was really necessary to build out you know, a global network of nanosatellites, a global ground station network, which is really the enabling factor for the products that we wanted to build. We wanted to build these products that, you know, you need a large network of satellites. You can't do with just a single, you know, super high quality satellite that you would buy at, you know, Airbus or Lockheed or whatever. We, we were looking at applications where you need a snapshot of what's going on globally and you need a snapshot very often, every, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Um, and you get that data down very quickly, get actionable insights. Um, so we're looking at all these kinds of uh, markets where 
your rapidly changing phenomena on Earth are relevant. And so we, we ended up with starting in the maritime market because um, we found that you know that that technology was fairly straightforward to do. You know, it had been done before. You could purchase components in the market that put on a satellite and launch. And, you know, had some good connections in that market. So we looked at that first. That was our first product. It took us a while to ramp up from, you know, having one or two satellites to um, having a fully functional operational product. And I think that's one of the areas people underestimate most when starting companies or when um, looking at these nanosatellite applications. It's very easy to demonstrate something once on a single satellite. It's very hard to take that to an operational service that you know, your customers can rely on like 99% reliability. In terms of low lights, um, we had one of our very, very early satellites, you know, failed and we had a lot of stumbling with our very first satellite. So that, you know, that's always painful. There's always, you know, um, the, trying to find trying to find funding is, uh, uh, is kind of its own process and not always as pleasant. Um, you know, people pull out at the last minute and you gotta find other investors and things like that. So that always happens, but that's just kind of things you have to grind through, I think, early on. Other than that, it was just, uh, you know, the normal stuff of how do you find people? How do you, you know, keep the lights on? How do you hit your deadlines and actually get on those launches? Um, I think what most companies um, go through. So I now imagine three, you are three uh, founders, right? Three yeah. graduates from uh, ISU starting a kickstart campaign, getting 100,000 to start a CubeSat. And then really interesting that you said you hired a business person to check the market. I think yeah. more space companies should do this. And I'm always wondering why they are not doing it. And then uh, you said um, the maritime market was your first uh, market and um, no one has done it before. Do you know why no one was aiming for this market? Um, because, I mean, there are big satellite players out there. Yeah, so the, there were existing uh, people in that market. Um, we, we do have competitors there. Uh, but as you say, that the product we wanted to offer was different. It was, it was not, you know, with the big satellites, you get, you know, maybe uh, one visit of these satellites every six hours or something like that. And that's, that's really not enough for some applications. And then the other thing is the, the way that you access the data with some of the other providers can be a little bit antiquated. And so we wanted to build a modern ecosystem of interfaces and tools that, that allow you to you know, use the data. So again, I think we started with the data and the products in mind, the number backwards to what do we need in space to be able to achieve that rather than you know, just building something and then saying, hey, we've got this data. Do you want just like fire a hose of data? And so doing it that way kind of opens up a mar the market a little bit more to people that maybe otherwise wouldn't you know, get that fire hose of data and do a bunch of like filtering and cleaning and whatnot in-house. So I think, you know, our focus was elsewhere. Uh, our focus was not on doing the same thing that had already been done. Yeah. So um, who are your main uh, customers? So it depends a little bit on the uh, on the market vertical. So in, uh, in maritime, it's, it's a lot of commercial and government customers. It's really a big swath, but, you know, think people that own ships, think ports, think insurance companies, um, coast guards, even hedge funds that want to know, you know how much oil moves in the oceans, things like that. In aircraft uh, tracking, looking more at uh, logistics and analytics markets. And then on the weather data side, um, you're looking more at government buyers of bulk data. So you're looking at the, the various weather centers in the world, uh, the European Center for Weather Forecasting, um, uh, NOAA in the, U in the US, uh, and a couple of others, NASA, for example, UK Met Office. 
And then for you know downstream weather data, you're looking at sec sectors like agriculture, maritime as well, aviation as well, sectors like that. I'm always surprised how big weather is. So they're just a market for weather data. We, yeah. civilian tunes in or maybe in the past tuned in the tv now i open my phone in the morning google weather and then i see how uh what the weather will be like the, the day after what kind of technology has to be operational in space and on ground in the air and everywhere to really yeah, come up with these forecasts it's really mm -hmm. incredible i found it really uh, fascinating that what you described was and is very similar to what we see on a daily basis, Daniel. And I also have this Earth Observation Data Analytics company. And we also see how hard it is or how hard it was to go from a prototype, which looks great on a small scale, to really have a product which works large scale, uh, where you have like so many moving parts because the complexity with just scaling something from one to 50 is, is so enormous and we really we we can definitely feel your pain which you had yeah. to go through yeah and also what i also found really interesting is that you said that you are making the data accessible making and we also always say we you have to make the insights actionable so maybe you can also in the beginning you said your data analytics or data provider with the advantage of having base component. Maybe you can also talk, uh, walk us a little bit through what does your hardware look like in orbit and how has it changed over the years? So is it only one U RU set size? So one U for all the listeners who don't know what it is, it's a space standard around 10 by 10 by 10 uh, centimeters cube. So how has the hardware changed and maybe also how, yeah, what is your software suit looking like today? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as you say, we started with one U satellite. That was just the first two satellites. Then we launched one, two U satellites. Then we launched a prototype three U satellites, Lemur 1. Lemur is our, our satellite name. That's a bit of a backronym. It stands for Low Earth Multi-Use Receiver. And after that, we started uh, launching Lemur 2 satellites. So Lemur 2 is our you know, kind of mainstream uh, bread and butter satellite today, um, of which we've launched now over 100, and we've got 88 in orbit today, I think. Various generations, you know, we've launched on more than 20 launch campaigns today, and we've launched, you know, as many generations of satellites, really, because um, every uh, every launch gets upgrades, whether they're you know, minor or major. But we've launched, launched at least four major generations of satellites, so that means, you know, completely new payloads or completely redesigned um, with higher performance, something like that. We've seen things where, you know, satellite launch today has three times the amount of payloads as a satellite launched in 2015, five years ago. Now it's about 100 times the performance. So we've been able to wow. uh, increase increase the performance of these satellites by quite a lot. Wow. On various, you know, looking at various KPIs like data generation, data quality, um, SNR, downlink volume, downlink speed, uh, things like that. So we, we, we use a very iterative model. We call it constant NPI, constant new product introduction model, where every satellite we launch is a prototype in a sense. Even though we you know we'll build, you know, maybe five to ten of every version, there's always something new, there's always something improved. And so that, that's how we've kind of set up our manufacturing and, and systems engineering processes as well, just assuming things keep improving, assuming changes always roll in. So those those are our assets in space. Three U satellites. We still launch them today. Today they have three payloads: AIS, ADSB, and a GNSS uh, sensing suite. And now we're also launching a number of variants of those that can do different things. 
I can't go to do too much detail, but we were doing a bit of experimentation with new types of payload, new types of technologies yeah. to kind of expand our, you know, our product scope. What I really like is your like end-to-end -end thinking from the product side that you also start with asking the question, what is the customer who wants to buy this? And you just don't, don't want to buy, build a satellite, right? But then on the other hand, beside that, you also start to go into the satellite as a service market, which is somehow like the opposite of it. Or is it? Yeah, it might seem that way initially. So the, what, the way we think about that is, is that you know, exactly this, this point of it takes so much effort to go from an initial product, initial satellite design, if, if we're talking about satellites, to an operational product. Because there's so much happening behind the scenes that, you know, as a, as a new entrant, you're not thinking about or you're not seeing or even as somebody that's experienced it you know you know you have to build it and it's extremely painful to build it so you know think about your ground station network that has to be reliable um, think about all the constellation management software that you need to operate 100 satellites it's, it's crazy it's yeah. it's a lot it's a lot more than you know what you what you would need to operate a few satellites manually or even what you know a, a communications uh, network needs to operate uh, earth observation is quite different um, so satellite operations for us is totally automated now. You know, operators don't really interact directly with satellites. Getting reliability to a point where you can actually sign SLAs with customers and say, yes, we can provide this data at this volume at 99% you know, reliability. Planning downtime, planning maintenance. So all of these processes are very hard to get to. And so what, what we saw is that well, we've built all of this. We've gone through all of this and it's been painful, but we've spent a lot of time and, and capital building this. And the other thing we saw was that we can do everything. You know, there's a lot of things that are on our roadmap that are really interesting, that align well with our know-how and our technologies, but we can't do them all because you know, we, we have one, we have to focus until we have limited time and resources. And so the space as a service idea came about trying to kind of bring those two things together and say, well, if there's people that you know have have payloads that are really interesting that you know we find interesting as well, and they're not really interested in like going through this churn of building constellation and building all the backend that's required. Why don't we work together? We'll, we'll put your payload in space, and maybe there's something we can do together, accessing each other's markets, you know, cross-selling products, things like that. So it's really um, it's really about finding synergies with other companies that are doing you know, similar things but can leverage some of the work that we've done on some of the infrastructure that we've built uh, over the years. So we're, we're not necessarily about, you know, selling one-off like satellite buses. That's that's not what we're going to do. But if there's somebody that has a payload and says, you know what, I don't want to deal with all the space stuff. I just want to get the data on the other end. That's more uh, where we're looking at. I think it's super cool that you said, you, you thought about, we can do everything. But I think what uh, every entrepreneur learns is, yes, we could do everything, but not now right with limited yeah. resources and so on because it's just very hard and uh, Sven and mm -hmm. I also um, I mean we graduated a few years after you um, and I also had two friends also wanted to start to build CubeSats but then we recognized actually we are maybe five to ten years too late and that's why also Sven and I said okay there is so much infrastructure in orbit let's start our data analytics company which is now also um, pretty successful but what we always discussed is do we want to uh, launch our own satellites at some point in time And now we, we always said, no, why should we do this? Because there are so many Earth observation satellites upcoming and in orbit. But now what I'm really interested in is how much would it cost, for example, to build a small constellation of, let's say, 10 uh, Earth observation satellites 
uh, with a payload and with your satellite as a service approach uh, just roundabout and how long would it take actually that's maybe even the more interesting yeah. question yeah well we'll have to have a conversation about the price separately <laughs> um, but you know, yeah. the, the way i can tell you a, bit, a little bit about the way we, we structure those things we think about more in terms of operations so we we charge you, you know, for, for the use of our bus and whatnot, but really we charge you for, you know, operating a payload. So you, you can pay, you know, per data unit almost, or per you know month of operations or something like that. And we also have multiple models where, you know, you can either launch alongside our payloads and kind of operate as a, you know, whenever there's time left, we use your payload, or you can get a whole dedicated satellite for yourself. And, you know, the price range differs quite a bit based on that. But, you know, obviously, if you're launching a constellation of, of 10, 20 satellites, you know, you're looking less than, you know, tens of millions of dollars, for sure. Yeah. Um, so fairly cheap for everyone who thinks it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but <laughs> in the context of space, it's not that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and especially when you start to think about, you know, all the infrastructure you have to deploy and, and maintain staff that you have to employ to get these things running. So yeah, and, you know, I think it's pretty reasonable, but you do have to think about it in an operational way. If you, you know, want to launch just one or two satellites and just want to you know, demonstrate technology for three months, maybe you know you want you want to buy a bus somewhere to do it yourself. But it's 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 a lot you know it's a lot easier to do it the way we're offering to do it. It's a lot more less hassle for uh, for people. Yeah, and that's definitely a thing which you want. You want to minimize complexity on your own side. If you if you already have so many moving parts, like for example, running a business, finding finding new customers for your offering, and then also dealing with the launch provider, the hardware, and everything. Yeah. It's great if you then can have a partner like Spire, which takes care of all of this. So then you asked a question about exactly how you swift moved from building these dedicated satellites for your use cases to also offering satellite as a service i maybe you could just say one or two more words about your really your data platform because is it like is it a web app is it integrating into already existing services is data stream which you can have your own bloomberg terminal oh uh, yeah exactly what is your data yeah, platform? yeah yeah so uh, you know it comes in multiple flavors and it depends on the on the market so for, for our, our commercial products everything's centered around you know rest apis trying to offer flexible apis and, and they come in multiple flavors if you really want to get the fire hose of data you can get the fire hose of data um, if you want to get a more filtered cleaned up view um, you can do that within that you know we can enable various features like for example for the ship tracking we also have a predictive models that you know, will take all the routes and uh, ports and even weather and you know publish like hey here's where we think the ship's going to be in a couple of hours can enable or disable that but generally it's all api based we you know we haven't produced any any real visualizations that we sell we just use those you know to demo data and whatnot we do try to make our data available on some of the uh, existing platforms like esri you know, rgis etc people that already use those platforms and um, just want to access the data in that framework and can go out and do that as well but our apis um, internally you know, have, have more functionality it is pretty cool. And uh, we have some follow up questions later on, which are about exactly how are you even doing all these this crazy, crazy things. Uh, but maybe first of all, since you're already in the business uh, since quite some time, and not only Spire has developed 
tremendously over the past years. We also have seen just uh, the, the launch market really evolving in a great way. And you, I think you have launched with every satellite op uh, or rocket uh, company out there, right? Even with Rocket Lab, is that correct? A lot of them, yeah. yeah. Not everyone, I would say, but, but yeah, definitely, but, but definitely a, lot. a lot of them. I think maybe around 10 of them or something. Yeah, and we've been following you know the new launcher landscape very closely, of course. We've got relationships with most of the players there. And we have launched on Rocket Labs a couple of times, and we're working you know, with some of the other ones for future launches as well. That sounds great. Yeah, In our past meetup, we had ESA Aerospace uh, from uh, Munich in Germany as a guest. Um, I don't know if you also already talked to them. If not, you should definitely talk to Daniel Metzler, the founder, um, and also like to promote the German new space industry. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I know there's a lot happening. Well, I'm, uh, our, our launch uh, manager you know, has a database of all these, all these companies that come up, and we try to keep in touch with all of them and get updates on progress and whatnot. So what, what was the most challenging uh, launch site for you? Um, there's been different challenges for different launch sites. We did a Japanese launch once where the test criteria were very strict. And so we had to go and find you know, special test facilities uh, for our satellites. That was kind of above and beyond um, what other people ask. Um, we had our first Russian launches. We had you know, export issues that we had to have to deal with. Yeah, and other than that, you know, it's gone, it's gone relatively smoothly. Um, the Rocket Labs launches are interesting because the one of them, you know, sat on the pad for a while. It was one of their earlier launches, um, and so we had to go and charge our batteries because it sat for you know, maybe half a year or something. Um, so then, you know, it takes three days to travel all the way to the to Maya Peninsula to go and do that and get back. That was that wasn't me, both luckily and unluckily, I would say, because you know it's not a fun trip, but it is really nice when you get there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's been you know there's been lots of challenges. But uh, you know we've been working with lots a lot of these launch providers and launch brokers uh, for a lot of years now. I think they know us. Um, you know they know they know we generally deliver on time. We do what we say we're gonna do so. Um, They're happy to be a bit flexible here and there. So what I think is really interesting is that, I mean, your company, and I think this is represented for a lot of new space companies, has like a complete vertical integration. And you also, what I've read is, have full testing capabilities, right? And this gives you fast turnaround times. So what was actually, so I think it's a hard challenge for some like three graduates uh, of university to uh, get all this knowledge about all the different yeah, components of this and the testing capabilities. So how hard was it actually to build this complete vertical integration chain and also the testing capabilities? Well, yeah, so we built it, you know, little by little. We didn't, we didn't do it in one go. We started system by system in order of importance. I would say to us, um, taking these systems in-house and slowly getting the resources and the know-how in-house, so hiring people that had done this kind of thing before or at least knew the kind of underlying physics or technologies that would go into it. That's definitely that's definitely so for the for the technologies. For some of them, you know, we had to experiment, and uh, we did things like building, you know, let's say a new radio and flying it alongside an old legacy radio that we want to replace. Um, so we could we could do that as well on the test facilities. I think that that was a bigger kind of one step change where we just did more of a data driven analysis and saw that you were spending a lot of time and money in these test facilities. If we had our own test facilities, we, they'd be occupied 100% of the time, and we'd be able to you know, schedule very flexibly. 
what we also saw a lot was that we had a lot of, because of this constant MPI model, we had a lot of late changes coming in from engineering saying that, hey, you know, if you could just get this change in, the performance would increase by you know, so much and so much. So we really designed our process around being able to include those changes as late as possible um, and get the best performance out of our satellites. Um, and so being able to then quickly reshuffle the testing uh, was very important. Or the other thing that happens is a lot of launches slip you know, back and forth. And so when a launch slips and you want it to you know, slip a, let's, let's say, a pre-booked campaign in an EMC test chamber or something like that, that costs you a lot of money. It might not even be possible to reschedule for you know, a month or weeks or something. So it just bought us a lot of flexibility to bring some of these test facilities in-house. And we see that you know, they paid for themselves within the first year, essentially. Uh, we see very high use out of them, not only for delivering satellites, but also engineering now spends much more time in them. We can do qualification of systems um, a lot more easily and so fly new stuff uh, a lot faster. Um, so that the test facility has been a, a big change in how we do things. I think it's actually, we looked at the data and it's reduced our test time from, I don't, exact, don't, don't know the exact numbers, but at least by you know, 50%. It, it, that's super, super cool, yeah. And I mean, uh, like when you compare uh, like agile software development, where you typically have, I don't know, one or two week sprints, uh, where you'll have a lot of changes with the traditional um, space engineering, where you have five to 10 years of planning um, and a, a waterfall project management. I think uh, that, that's really one of the keys of, of your success that you push the boundaries a bit more to this agile hardware satellite space development. Um, and that's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe just one follow up question there. Exactly. Do you also run with sprints free from an operational point of view? Because also Daniel and I, we uh, went through some like a growth process with our engineering team. And we, we pretty early saw that, yeah, sprints work um, quite good. But of course, for some people, it, it, it was still, which came maybe from a different type of background academia or so where they were not used to this it was kind of a challenge and also as described by daniel sprints are not the usual process in the aerospace industry so how do you organize your your, your tech team so that they can re-deliver such an innovative uh, product uh, with such a high frequency yeah good question so we we started out um, when we were still a small team we did start out doing sprints with a whole team um, but once we you know, grew past, let's say, 20 people or something, and also we opened up our international offices, um, that started to become very hard. So we switched to a bit of a decentralized model, I would say. So it really depends on the team now today. Um, so some teams will, will run you know, one or two week sprints. Some teams run uh, six week development cycles. Some teams run more towards a waterfall, you know, Gantt chart match type projects. So it, it depends on what activity is happening and what you know, specific team, what they decide they want to do. Yeah, cool. That, that, that's uh, super, super cool. And I, I, um, I would love to see your facilities also at some point in time when I'm in Glasgow um, yeah, okay. or in um, maybe also in San Francisco. Uh, so Sven and I have been there uh, last year. Uh, very great uh, new space industry. Um, and I think yeah. that's also interesting that your company, you actually started in San Francisco. And now you have big facilities in Glasgow. Um, could you maybe um, uh, explain us a bit uh, why this uh, happened? Uh, so was it a strategic move or um, what was actually the reason for that? Yeah, this happened um, very early on already. So, I mean, 
from the from the moment we started we we always we were a very global company and wanted to be a very global company you know three founders are international um belgian canadian austrian and we started in in san francisco mainly because of we had a very supporting ecosystem there both from you know kind of the nasa aim side which which at that time was really supportive of uh, of, of these new businesses Silicon Valley, you know, in general, we found a technology incubator there where we spent some time. So it was a very good environment to get started. Then as we grow, I would say there's, there's kind of two things, you know. One, it's a very expensive place, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, expanding there to the kind of size we would want to grow through naturally was never really an option. We always wanted to, you know, uh, expand internationally, and not just because of cost, but also because of getting access to the talent, um, getting access to engineers in, in uh, San Francisco is very hard. The other aspect was being able being able to launch with whoever we wanted more easily. So export control, uh, I would say. Also, uh, you know, at that time, back when we started, CubeSat was still on the, uh, on the ITAR list, so it was even more complex back then. So we actually first we started our, our Singapore office. Um, that was our first international office. Then in 2015, um, we opened up our Glasgow office. Um, we wanted to open up, you know, an office in Europe, and, and uh, we looked at various criteria and talked to various places. But uh, yeah, Glasgow ended up being uh, being the place we went to. So, uh, how many people do you have uh, right now? Uh, global over the company, something like 225, wow. 230 would be my guess. Wow, that's that's really incredible. Yeah, yeah. and how was it uh, uh, distributed over the different locations? And maybe also over the different departments. Yeah, um, yeah sure. So um, uh, over the different locations, so I think the U.S. in total is about probably 100 people. EU in total is about uh, 100 people. Um, so UK and Luxembourg. Um, yeah. And then um, Singapore, um, probably around 15, 20 people, something like that. And, and how is your team composition, like between software, hardware and also business? Yeah, so we used to have, you know, a much larger, uh, our space program used to be, you know, maybe two thirds to three quarters of the company, but that has shrunk ever since you know, we started to really go into the data markets. Once once our constellation was up to a, a state where um, we could start selling data. And now I think we're about half of the company or about 110 people um, on the on the you know, space engineering side, which I would say is, is anything up to delivering raw data to either our internal teams that will take it and build products or to yeah. external external companies. So so what's grown most in recent times has been the uh, the data teams. So you know building API, um, building products on top of the data, um, sales engineering, um, things like that have really grown uh, recently. Oh, that's incredible. To get to this point, you, you need a lot of money, right? And we know this startups and you just mentioned san francisco is a great environment to start a company it's not because uh it's it's so beautiful and it's a good, it's a, it's a great coast but also because there's a lot of venture capital and um, so maybe you can walk us a little bit through how spire has been able to grow through at the beginning we've heard through crowdfunding but how have you been able to raise capital and and exactly maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about yeah, this. Yeah, 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 sure. So, yeah, when we, when we first got settled in San Francisco after the Kickstarter campaign, we um, using you know that that money and then some of our own uh, cash, um, we started building first satellite at the same time. Also started trying to raise our seed round. 
to launch these satellites uh, and to start building, you know, follow-on uh, follow-on satellites and to start exploring businesses and, and, uh, and products. Um, so we raised, raised raised about a million or something, I think, um, probably half a year after the Kickstarter. So that um, that was in 2013. We raised follow-on rounds ever since. So we raised a Series E A in 2014, B in 15 or 16 or something, and then Series C in 2017, and uh, Series D last year. Yeah. And our investors have been all kinds of different types of investors. We've had, you know, typical kind of venture capital businesses. Uh, that are you know pretty well known and support other space companies, but also other you know Silicon Valley or tech companies, companies like uh, RE Ventures, Promise Ventures, um, uh, Bessemer, big all, names. Yeah, yeah, some of the, some of the bigger names. Uh, we've also had more um, kind of institutional investors like Qualcomm, um, Airbus, places like that that you know are more kind of strategically aligned, and then we've had um, you know. Uh, localized entities closer to where we operate. We've had New Luxembourg uh, Future Fund, had Scottish Enterprise uh, invest. So those are uh, those are kind of the, the three main types of investors. And I, I mean, uh, like, especially in the in the early days, I think it, it is really hard to uh, convince investors with a space company because you have a lot of high upfront investments and it's um, uh, hard to sell it to customers, um, especially before you have the system operational. So can you maybe tell us um, uh, how early you had uh, the first customers um, and how this helped you raising the uh, venture capital? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm, I don't remember if it was before our seed round or just after our seed round, but, but somewhere around that time. We started, you know, we started talking to customers. You know, I mentioned we hired a first business person. Um, she yeah. started, you know, talking to the markets, talking to customers, building relationships. And um, what we did was, as you said, we didn't have a real product to sell, but we could give sample data um, to people. And then we were also able to sign some LOIs, some letters of intent, uh, with some of these customers, essentially saying, you know, yes, you know, if, if you build the thing, you you say you're you're going to build, we're going to be very interested. So that's, uh, yeah, that's that's the way we did that. And how did you convince the first investor? Was it hard? Did you have to talk to a lot of investors? So what do you think was the main reason why they invested into uh, Spire? I think, you know, that, that early on, people invest for, for a vision and for a team. You know, they, they, they invest for a possibility that this is going to be a huge thing and that there's a huge market for it. And you, you mentioned whether, you know, you're surprised how big of a market that, that is, right? And I think that's one of the main things. That we, were, we were looking at weather very early on as a market because it's so large and, and so impactful. So, yeah, I think the, the size of the, the market you can possibly address. And then yeah. you know, the, the team, how does the team feel? What is the track record? What have you built so far? How have you built it so far? Definitely, definitely very incredible. And I think it's a role model for other companies which want to build any kind of hardware, uh, hardware, uh, space hardware to really have a vision, have uh, business people early on, which bring in potential customers and really show uh, a way to profitability and not only not only the big vision, but also a way how you get there. I we at, uh, at New Space Vision always try to also um, yeah look at the difference between the US and Europe in terms of New Space, and I think there's probably no better company uh, than, than than Spire, no better person to ask uh, about the differences than you, who has experienced both environments. So maybe if you could tell us 
what your thoughts are on the differences between Europe and the US in terms of the new space environment and uh, whether you think that it would also have been possible to raise such an early round for a space company in Europe. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, interestingly enough, one of the main investors on our seed round was uh, a Belgian investor. Um, so, um, while we were at that point in the US, um, we, we ended up, um, you know, uh, taking on the money from the Belgian investor and they, they ended up investing in, in later rounds as well. Uh, and they were actually great. Um, we're still uh, keeping in touch with them. So, you know, it, it wasn't impossible back then, but I think it was definitely, it would have been very hard. And in fact, we... We started very early on, even before we um, we started in, in, in San Francisco uh, in Europe to kind of go around and, and uh, look at you know who would be interested or if there was interest. But at that point, you know the the funding ecosystem really wasn't there, and um, people were investing in things like biotech and whatnot, um, and weren't really interested in space. Um, and the ones that were, you know, were, were looking at very long timelines and uh, amounts of capital that couldn't grow a company very quickly. So um, so I think it was, it was the US was a more conducive environment to do that for sure back then. I think it has changed um, recently, you know, in the last maybe not five years, but three years or something. I see significantly more activity in Europe. You know, it's still it's still only a fraction of what capital is available in the US, but it's a lot uh, it's a lot more conducive of an environment now. There's a lot more incubators, there's a lot more you know companies. Now you need other companies around you, you know, to kind of yeah, build this ecosystem and, and to be able to run. I think the other thing is that back then the companies you saw starting in Europe were more the kind of tech equipment companies. You know, small companies having a, a patentable technology that will you know sell to, to Airbus and um, uh, OHB and, and all the others, not necessarily the kind of end-user product companies. And I think that's also changed now, and, and people are really turning their head towards uh, towards the data and you know who outside of the space industry is going to buy these products. So um, that, I think. Um... Like the way you made us, uh, Sven already said it, um, uh, can act like a role model for the industry. Um, we from New Space Vision uh, really want to encourage people to start their own company. Um, uh, but I mean, of course, a lot of uh, talented um, uh, people, engineers, business um, people have fear to start something in the space industry. Um, so what kind of message do you have to those people? Um, and what is, what is your opinion um, of how and why they should start a space company. Yeah, I mean, I would say only only do it if you feel like you have no other choice. If you feel like that's the thing you have to do, then then go and do it. If you feel like it, you know, it's just cool or there's some other reason, you know, it is a grind. It is it is painful you're going to go through, you know. It is. Really <laughs> crises and whatnot that if you don't have the the drive to finish what you started, you know, it's not going to work out. So it, Find something you know that you you can't not do, um, and go do that. But you know whether it's space or whether it's tech or whether it's you know biotech or something else, I don't think it matters that much to be honest. I think it's all it all comes with the same challenges um, in terms of building a business, in terms of finding the right people, in terms of finding you know investors. You know different, yes, but whether it's more difficult for a space company, I don't know. Is there anything? where you would say that's that's a good starting point like if you have this drive and if you feel like you can't do anything but starting a space company what would you say is a good starting point to go for it 
Well, I mean, I would say start with the customer, start with the user, and start thinking about you know who who outside of the space industry is going to pay for this, right? Yeah. Imagine yourself convincing a customer that does not care about space at all, or that you know finds space obnoxious. Like, how are you going to yeah. sell your product to them, or how are you going to provide value to them? Well, we, we would have tons of more questions. And I think, uh, yeah, also all the listeners are really uh, excited about um, to find out more about Spire. There are some great videos online um, and uh, also your webpage is, is really beautiful. Um, so yeah. we, I can just encourage everyone to find out more about Spire. I would like to thank you very much. Uh, for these uh, these these few minutes to talk about how your experience was, how you came all the way to really building this 250 people big uh, space, new space role model, um, and we thank you very much for taking the time today with us. And yeah, let's hope um, we all can speak and meet one another after Corona is over. Yeah. <laughs> and again, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. Thank you.